0: We'll be in Genesis 6 tonight. Does that sound right? Yeah, okay, I bet y'all probably, I guarantee y'all put a mark like, please don't let us go before that. We're going to have to, <laughs> took us long enough to get there. Let's, don't go backwards. But uh, Genesis chapter 6 tonight, which of course obviously gets us to the story of Noah and the flood. I'm thankful to be here. I'm, I'm thankful to be back together on Wednesday night. So, uh. So excited to see so many! Our students are down the hill there, having their kickoff and choir back in action, and other classes going on. So just thankful for what the Lord's doing. Excited about uh, opportunities coming up. Kind of moving back into the fall. I know uh, all these days um, are are somewhat tenuous, and there's always something happening now that seems like it changes our plans immediately but there is just something really nice about the first day of school for us parents, right? <laughs> I mean, they're gone, you know what I'm saying? They're not here right now. And that's how, uh, it just somebody somewhere has got to take care of them. Um, so we're, we're thankful, uh, in that way, but, uh, it's, it's good for us as well. As we start off this semester to be back in God's word in the book of Genesis, that, Verse in Genesis chapter six, verse eight is an important verse. Uh, Anytime in scripture you have that word, but there, anytime you have that word is leads to something that's vitally important for us to know, because in the midst of God's judgment, he has one Noah who he is going to show grace, who he is going to show favor to. And so for us, that's a, a big step. And so tonight we want to discuss that, what that means, and then moving forward into um, the, the story there of the flood. So I'm, gonna, I'm going to um, pray really quick and just ask, us to, ask the Lord to take our time uh, with this, and then we'll look together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the grace by which you have shown us in Jesus Christ. So help us tonight to celebrate that and rejoice in it. In Jesus' name, amen. If you remember, uh, just quick, bring us up to date. We are in the book of Genesis, the most foundational verse in all of Scripture. One of those verses where once you believe this verse to be true, the rest of Scripture is not hard to believe, is Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And once we establish that as true, that there is a God who rules and reigns and makes everything, spoke it all out of nothing, he sets the rules, he sets the standards, he can do as he pleases, and he holds all things together. Once that is established for us, then we recognize all of Scripture is going back and pointing us toward him. And so, In this, we see how he does this. He creates the heavens and the earth out of nothing. He speaks them into existence. And Genesis 1 teaches that he does this in six days. And as he does this, he forms the earth in the first three days and then he fills it. Remember, in the next three, he forms the heavens and the earth, he forms the waters and the the land, he forms the sky, and he fills them then after that with the stars and the animals, and of course, finally with man. So he forms it and fills it. And then on the seventh day, he rests. And that rest is perpetual, I believe, in some ways. I know if you say perpetual rest, some of, some of us get a little, a little hesitant when we're talking, about, we're talking about funeral homes or something. But <laughs> that rest in Scripture was meant to be established and stay there. It was not just fleeting. They were to rest in the Lord. They were to rest in him. And so that rest was established. And even in the midst of that, God placed Adam and Eve, the crowning jewels of his creation. Adam, he formed out of the dust of the earth, breathed his own breath in it. Eve he formed from the side of Adam. Y'all know these stories well. They are the crowning jewels of creation. In fact, the scripture says that they're the vice regents, if you will. God is in charge of all things, and he puts Adam and Eve in charge. You were to exercise and have dominion over this earth. You were to, to rule it and to keep it. So he puts them in charge of it, and they are taking care of things, right? And so Adam and Eve are placed in this garden where they work, and that work is a joy to them and it is a pleasure. And as it ends chapter 2, Adam has sung his song. He sees his wife and he breaks out singing and rejoicing. He sings and the scripture says that they were naked. I'm going to be careful. It's not naked. You all know the difference, naked and naked. But they were naked and they were not ashamed. It speaks to the happiness and joy of what Adam and Eve were experiencing in the presence of God resting in his peace. They were, they were naked and not ashamed. But then in Genesis 3, the great disturber of God's peace steps in, right? The one who's going to take the peace and try to wreck it and end it. And the great disturber of God's peace, we're not told where he comes from. We're not told how he got there. We're not told those things because it's not needed. And remember how we had that whole conversation? We may want to know some of those things, but it's not needed for us to know. God had, we we know in Scripture there's only the things God the commands and the things he allows, right? And God has allowed him here and he enters into the garden. Adam had a job to do. Adam's job was to work it, protect it, and keep it. He should have taken the serpent at that moment and squashed his head and kicked him out of the garden, right? That should have been his response whenever the great deceiver of God's people entered in, but yet they listened to him and he lies it's the scheme of the devil. He's a liar. He's been a liar from the beginning as John 8:44 says. He lies to them and gets them to believe that they are smarter than God. Gets them to question the authority of God. Remember God had only given Adam one rule. You can eat of anything you can want to in this whole garden except for this tree that's in the center. Knowledge of good and evil, you can't eat of that one. And it was a probationary rule as we talked about. If he eats of it, you lose the peace and the rest. And so obedience is what's called for. And so there, the serpent lies and says, God is scared you'll be just as smart as he is. And the heart of every sin in scripture, in fact, the heart of every sin that we may have committed today is the idea that we're smarter than God and we know better than him. He has a plan. Here's how you are to live. Here's what's best for you. And yet we say, no, we're going to do something different against your plan, which is sinfulness or disobedience, because we think sometimes we're smarter than he is. And, and here's what the devil convinces Eve of. And then Eve turns around and, and says, you want to eat too. And Adam chooses here to eat with his wife. And there immediately, what does it say? They recognize that they were naked. The peace That they had, the joy that they rested in, right, was lost immediately. They tried to hide from God. They can't do that. They sewed up, remember, designer fig leaves and everything else, trying to do the best they can to cover this up. Why? Because they recognized in their nakedness, they were inappropriate now because of their sin. Y'all know what it means to get dressed up and be dressed appropriately for the occasion. When they appeared before the Lord in their nakedness, they had no covering. They had nothing to protect them. They They were inappropriate before God. And so they tried to cover themselves, and yet their coverings were inappropriate. And God comes to them, and in Genesis chapter 3, he pronounces the curses there in Scripture that we still deal with today. Remember, in the garden there was perfect peace between God and man, perfect peace between man and woman and perfect peace between man and the earth. And in Genesis 3, all of those are lost. All of those are lost. That peace is destroyed and it's just ripped in two. And there's that verse in Genesis 3:15 that I told you that I believe is the thesis of all of Scripture. It's the thesis of everything that we're going to that you study in Scripture. And that verse is when he looks at the serpent and he curses him, he says, "I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He says to the serpent that there is coming this strife between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. And they're going to battle here. There's enmity between them. And finally, the offspring of the woman is going to, the, the serpent may deal some blow, right? He may bruise his heel, but the offspring of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. The serpent. Bruising of the heel is not a death blow. It's something we may limp with, but we don't die from. But the crushing of the head, you will be conquered. And so the serpent knows there's one coming who will be crushing his head at that point. And from this point in scripture, what are we looking for? We're looking for the serpent crusher. Who is the one coming from this woman who's going to end this disturber of the peace? Who is the one coming from this woman who's going to take the enemy of God and crush his head and deal with him finally at the end? Who is coming? So all of scripture then lays out with these two strands, if you will, the offspring of the serpent, the offspring of the woman, looking and longing for the one who will finally deal with this issue, who will finally restore the peace of God and make everything that was wrong right again. Where is he at? The serpent crusher. And that's what scripture is all about. That's what scripture is all about. We see immediately off the bat this happens, right? Right after he says this, first of all, the Lord God himself takes two animals and kills them, takes the skin and puts it on Adam and Eve, covering them so that they will be appropriate before him in their covering. And what does it teach us? It teaches automatically that the only way we can be made appropriate before God is there must be a sacrifice of blood that will take that place and cover us. And then immediately the children of Adam and Eve show themselves that it's not just the offspring of Adam and Eve, but it's the offspring of character of them. One who is either going to be trusting in the deeds or the lies of the serpent or one who is going to be trusting in the promises of God. And immediately you have this. You have Cain, who is obviously following after the lies of the devil because the devil's crouching at the doors looking to devour him, the Lord says. And you have Abel. And in this, you see, even in their own sacrifices, Cain just simply brings the first fruit of his his, uh, farm, you know. So he's he's bringing some barley and some grain and some of that kind of stuff. Whereas God had already said, you need a sacrifice of blood, and Abel brings that kind of sacrifice. Cain gets mad because God accepts Abel's, and he kills him. Immediately, you see this battle between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. The Cainites then continue, and they grow, and they get more and more wicked. It's not like they get better. From Cain, you go all the way down to Lamech, and it says in in Genesis chapter 4 that Lamech's killing thousands, whereas Cain just killed a few. Lamech's killing even more. So you see the wickedness increase, and Abel is gone. So what happens now? If we're trusting in the offspring of this woman, we need an offspring, Because Abel's dead and Cain has a mark on him and he's undone. He's no longer following after the Lord. Who is it? And you see, along comes Seth, where the Lord gives them another child, Seth. And it's from Seth that this line continues. The book of Genesis, as we've said before, is a genealogy. It's giving this line as it comes. And what happens in these genealogies is oftentimes as they tell the the story of the genealogy, they stop and they tell the interesting stories along the way. So we have in chapter 5, right? We have where they list out 10 generations that come from Seth. They're listing this out. Why? Because God's keeping his promise. He's going to create a generation offspring from the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. We're looking for that one. And so we have this generation. Remember, when they sinned in the garden, what was the consequences of their sin? You die. And so in Genesis 5, you see this. They may live a long time here before the flood, but every single little paragraph ends with, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. But remember, even in the midst of those, and he died, ten generations, there's one that doesn't. Remember? Enoch. He walked with the Lord, and the Lord took him, and he was no more. Even in the midst of death, and he died, and he died, and he died, there's a glimmer of hope that death won't finally have the final say. There's a glimmer of hope that there will be some who do not succumb to death because of the Lord taking them with him. And so you see even these glimmers of hope, and then you get to the end of chapter 5, and you come to the beginning of chapter 6, and we dealt with that. Last time, and what's happened is the Canites, who are wicked, have taken over, and even even the uh, the Cainites who are wicked are marrying some of those who are seeking to be right. You know, so you have the sons um, the sons of God and the daughters of men. We discussed who that probably was those who were faithfully following after the Lord and those who were the Canites intermarrying, and so now even those lines are drawn to the point the Lord says. He says that here now the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So as the Lord looks at the earth, there's none seemingly who are following after him. All of them have become wicked. And the says here that the Lord is going to do something about this. And so in, it's, in there it says, so the Lord said, verse 7, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens for I am sorry that I have made them. Now understand God's regret or sorry here. It's not the same it's not the same emotion that we feel as if We wish that wouldn't have happened. It's different from that. It's more as if we did this and this consequence that has come about is not something we enjoy. It's something we regret that's there. Not sorrow for doing it. Sorrow for the consequence that has happened in this. And so as the Lord looks at these people, he's saying, I wish they would have been righteous, but they they are not. I'm sorry that they're even here. And because of their own unrighteousness, what does the Lord say? I'm going to blot them out. I'm going to blot them out. Judgment. Now, I find it interesting here that oftentimes we don't like to talk about judgment. But you need to understand, we we love to talk about grace, right? But we don't like judging. We don't like judgment. There is no concept of grace that is not overlaid or understood through judgment. What is grace? It's salvation from judgment, right? Right? Is something that we deserve, something that we should get, something that we have earned, yet they don't give it to us. That's grace. So it's God's unmerited favor, if you will. And so the judgment is here. It is necessary because of sin. God has pronounced the judgment, and there in pronouncing the judgment, we're going to see this beautiful picture of God's grace. We're going to see this beautiful picture of God's grace. You can't understand grace without understanding judgment. Whenever we think about it, this is the way we put it sometimes when we're talking to people about the gospel. We'll say you've got to get somebody lost before you can ever get them saved. You ever heard that? you got to get them to understand that because of your sinfulness, God is going to judge you for the wages of sin is death. Because of your sin, God is going to judge you. And until you understand that, you will never understand the grace of God through Jesus Christ who came and died for your sins so that your judgment has been already secured through Christ on the cross and there is no condemnation left for you. You don't understand the beauty of grace until you understand the tragedy and awfulness of God's judgment. And that's what we see here in chapter 6. Because judgment comes in. I'm going to blot everybody out, but, and that but is a statement of grace. There's a lot of good buts in the Bible. I just want to let y'all know one of them is my favorite Ephesians chapter 2, right? Y'all know Ephesians chapter 2? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were uh, wicked from the beginning, following the lusts of your heart, the prince of the power of the air. You're dead, you're disobedient. You're doomed. The same blood in you runs in those who are going to hell. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. You can read it yourself. You're dead in your trespasses and sins, but then 2, 4 says what? But God, because of the great love in which he loved us, when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. That's a pretty good but, right? You were dead, but God did something. Judgment is coming, and I'm going to blot out every single person. But recognize what happens if that's the case. If God blots out every single person on the face of the earth, what happens? Genesis 3.15 no longer is there. God hasn't kept his promise. He said, I'm going to raise up one from Eve who will crush the head of the serpent. And so if he said that and he blots out every single person then can he raise up one from Eve again? No. So the scriptures say that God is going to blot out everybody, but because God always keeps his promises, he gave grace to who? Noah. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That does not verse. Sometimes we read that as in it speaks to Noah's character. Like God was looking around and sees Noah, and there's a pretty good guy right there. I think Noah, I'll show him some favor. That's not what's happening here. It says it says that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. He regretted he made them. I'm going to blot them all out except for one. I'm going to show my grace. So you only understand the grace of God that he shows to Noah in light of the fact that he's about to judge the earth. I always thought it was interesting um, I think I guess I was I was young buck when my first kid was born, and uh, we were we were there. And we have you know how you have the the first birthday or something like that, and people bring gifts, and you get more gifts at like your first birthday party than you ever get the rest of your life combined. <laughs> Whenever uh, Wiles was born, I remember we were I was a pastor in a little church in Kentucky, and they all just showered gifts. We got four. This is a true story. Four sets. Of Noah's Ark, little people. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Four sets. It's like, it's like the Ark, you got Noah, his wife, she don't even have a name, and, and you got them, and you got a couple animals to go through, and, it is, and it's the an Ark, and this is so cute, right? When we read, and then, and then, of course, not long after that, I was preaching through this passage, and I was realizing, man, this is not very you know, a, a very cute passage. You know what I'm saying? This is judgment of God. It's a great little kid toy. You know, <laughs> just Noah heart. You got the animals is great. But at the same time, what's happening here is God is recognizing sin and He is going to blot it out. And the only thing we see that's redeeming this place, the only thing we see that's redeeming man is God's grace that He displays to Noah. And so He says to Noah. Noah finds favor in his eyes. He comes down, and you see in verse 9, again, this is a genealogy. So these are the generations of. We've already had that a couple of times. These are generations of God. These are generations of Adam. These are generations of Seth. Now these are the generations of Noah. These are generations of Noah. Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. We see here Noah's relationship, God's grace upon him. Noah walked with God. That statement, Noah walked with God, is the same statement that was made about Enoch. It's the same statement that we will see later about Abraham. It's the same statement we'll see later about Judah and others. They walked with God. It was a statement that they were faithful, that they were righteous. So Noah, faithfully and righteous, is being obedient to God. He had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. God makes the pronouncement. The first thing I want us to see here that's important in this is that God reveals himself. Noah would have no idea of what's coming unless what happened? God told him. Remember, there's two kinds of revelation. We have what we call general revelation. We can look out and we see how creation is ordered, is structured, is beautiful, and it testifies that there is a creator. We see that in in general. We see it all the time. We talk about it when we see beautiful sunsets over the mountains. We see all these other things. Obviously, you see order in creation. You can take that in any way. The fact that the earth is exactly where it needs to be for life to be sustained on it. You know, if it was, they say, as they say, if it was just slightly closer to the sun, it would burn up. Slightly farther away, it would freeze. It's exactly where it needs to be in order for life to be sustained. You see that with our own bodies, how, how our bodies work and the intricacies of our eyes and our mind and all these other things. You look at creation and you have to say there is a creator. This doesn't just happen by happenstance or chance. There's a creator and it's majestic and that creator is displayed in his majesty and his power, the scripture says. We can see that when we see creation. We can see that when we can see creation. And if you deny it, Romans 1 says, you're actually trading what is righteous and true for a lie. And so we see creation. We see it. That's general revelation. We know there is a creator. But when we look at a sunset... We don't look at a beautiful sunset, no matter how pretty it is. We don't look at it and go, I am so glad Jesus died for my sins. It doesn't tell us that. It tells us there's a creator. It tells us that there's one who's designed this thing that we must answer to even. There's one greater than us. But it doesn't tell us that Jesus Christ came, took our sin, became flesh, took our sin, died on the cross, and rose again on the third day. That's called special revelation. And we have learned that through the word, right? So you have general revelation you learn from from creation itself. And then you have special revelation that you learn from the word. What's happening for Noah here is special revelation. And that special revelation doesn't just come uh, in the sense of, I'm going to save you from it. Noah is told there's coming judgment. Now, if you, if you see what my point is, if you look over to Romans chapter one, a passage that speaks about this clearly, Romans chapter one, Paul is relating this and he says We know that famous verse, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Romans 1, 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of of God is revealed from faith to faith. What does Paul say? Salvation has been what? Revealed. You wouldn't figure it out on your own. Somebody had to tell you God himself has told you through his word. Salvation has been revealed through him. So it's been revealed the righteous shall live by faith. But then, if you look at verse 18, he continues and he says, What? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Not only has God's salvation been revealed, but what else has been revealed? His judgment. God is revealing the fact that he will judge. And so here, Noah may have been skipping along in his life trying to live for the Lord, and the Lord has favor upon him through grace, and he's not going to destroy him with the rest of the earth. But Noah would not have known any of that unless God had spoken to him, right? And so when we come to this passage, we must at first glance thank God that he speaks to us. That he's not left us guessing. He's not left us wondering. When we come at this, Noah is receiving a word directly from the Lord. We have received this through God's word that is in our laps, on our tables, in our hands that we're able to read. So God has spoken clearly to us through his word and we have everything we need in there. God himself has revealed himself to us. And not only has he revealed himself to us, he's saying, here's how you are to live. And so, Oftentimes, people wonder about God's will in their life or what should they do, and they they wonder about those details, but let's get something clear. God's will has been stated clearly for you. God's will for you is for you to trust in him and believe by faith, repenting of your sins and putting your faith in Christ because he's the only way you'll skip out of the judgment that is coming. He's told us all of this. That's what he's called us to do. And so here for Noah... Noah hears God's word, hears God speaking. God reveals to him, judgment is coming, Noah. Judgment is coming. What's Noah's response, obviously? I mean, what would be yours? If God is speaking to you, judgment is coming, what am I supposed to do, right? Tell me, what is it you you want from me? And God is going to tell him. He says, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. This is the same word for for boat, if you will, a basket, a basket. An ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, is breadth 50 cubits. You can go on and read this. He's going to describe exactly here's what you are to do, Noah. He tells him the dimensions, he tells him how to make the pitch. He tell, I don't even know what pitch is. I just said that because it's in it. He tells him how to, how to put it all together. He tells him how tall it's supposed to be, how long it's supposed to be. He's the one who's going to say, I'm going to bring the animals to you. Noah doesn't even have to go round them up. The Lord brings them in. Y'all remember what happened to the unicorns. So all of this goes on. So, so this is how Noah, Noah does it. Noah says, what am I supposed to do? And God himself tells him, here is exactly what you are to do. And it sounds crazy. Because up until this point, the scripture is going to tell us rain hadn't fallen from the sky, right? God had how he watered it. You, you wake up on the heavy dew mornings. You know what I'm talking about. God takes care of it. So Noah's telling people when they, he starts to build this boat, what in the world is going on? What are you doing, Noah? You're crazy. I'm not crazy. It's about the rain and all of y'all are going to drown. You're crazy. It's nonsense. And, and what's interesting about this to me? is that's exactly what we have in God's word, right? I mean, just for a moment, think about this. God has told us, here's what's going to happen. Or for us, here's what did happen. I will send my only begotten son who's co-equal, co-eternal with me forever. I'm going to send him down to earth. He's going to become flesh. Born of a woman, Genesis 3.15. Born of a woman, he will become flesh. He'll be fully God and fully man. He will live his life perfectly and happily for 30 years, not being made known public by being born of a virgin and living with a carpenter as his earthly father. He'll live there in a little town called Nazareth and nothing good comes out of that town. And at the end of that, he'll begin to make himself public. He'll call only 12 dudes to himself. He'll bring them in. He'll teach them his ways. He'll show himself with miracles. He'll prove himself in everything he does. He's going to do all of this. And at the end of those three years, they're going to put him to death. And it's going to look like, it's going to look like that that's the end. It's over. He just died just like all these other people who may have thought they're the Messiah. It's going to look like that, right? But when he hangs on that cross, I'm going to take the sins of of all of the world and my people and I'm going to put them on his back and he's going to tote them. He who knew no sin will become sin. There on the cross, he will die and he will give up his life willingly having died for his people in their place, the blood sacrifice that was needed once and for all. And when he does that, he will end sin and he will end death and he will be laid in a tomb and on the third day, he will rise from the dead, right? Y'all see this? And then he will be exalted and put at the right hand of the Father. That's how I'm gonna do it. And the world looks at you and goes, that's crazy. Paul says it that way, right? To those who hear this, it's foolishness, it's nonsense. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God, he says. We see the plan of God may not always fit out like we think man should have it fit out. We, we look at it and that's not the way I would do it. God does it his way to prove that he is greater, stronger, wiser than all of us. And so even here for Noah, I'm going to build this boat and it's going to start raining and God's judgment is going to come and you're going to be in trouble. That's crazy. And oftentimes in the world, that's exactly what they say about the story of Christ himself. Now, I find it interesting. This is the first night back, so I'm not going to keep y'all the whole time. I don't, I don't want to wear y'all out. I want to stretch you out. One of my, uh, one of my favorites, preachers uh, in the last century was a man named Martin Lloyd-Jones, British preacher from England, preached in a chapel called Westminster Chapel. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a hero of mine, I always tell this to everybody, he, he, uh, I've got 13 volumes It takes up about this much room on my shelf of the book of Romans. He preached verse by verse through the book of Romans, and it took him 13 years, right? We'll start Romans next week. So y'all can can act like you're taking too long here for Genesis. He took 13 years going through Romans. Um, He did it on a Friday night. Instead of Sunday mornings, he did it on a Friday night in London, and he never preached to less than 2,000 people who came to hear him preach through Romans. And so Lloyd-Jones is just an incredible figure. The, the, the whole, if you f- see a book by Lloyd-Jones, he, didn't, he never wrote a book. He only spoke, and they would take what he spoke, and they would transcribe it down. And so Lloyd-Jones is an incredible figure who preached in, in, in England, really kind of the, the father of evangelicalism or a l- great leader in evangelicalism, if you will. At the same time, there was another great leader, the guy who started Christianity Today. His name's Carl F.H. Henry. Carl F.H. Henry started Christianity today. Uh, The modern evangelical movement, this is more than y'all want to know, but I'll give it a little bit to you. Um, Modern evangelical movement had a couple arms to it, if you will. Carl F.H. Henry in the 1940s started Christianity Today. A man named Harold Ockingay uh, in the 1940s started uh, a seminary. Uh, Fuller Seminary, so you had the education part, the journalism part, and then there was another guy named Billy Graham who started the preaching part of it. These three organized together to start what we call evangelicalism, modern evangelicalism, right? So Carl Henry is the guy who's documenting everything that's going on in evangelicalism in the in the nineteenth, I mean, excuse me, in the twentieth century. And so Lloyd Jones is eighty years old; he's about to die; he's really at the end. And Carl Henry goes to him. And he wants to do an interview. And he's doing an interview in Christianity Today. And so in 1980, just two months before Lloyd-Jones dies, uh, he does it, Carl Henry does an interview with him. And so he's doing the interview just talking about how, how life is. I mean, this guy's, before there were celebrity preachers, he was one of them. You know what I'm saying? He's, he's important. Everybody's listening to him. He's made great influence in Britain and America. And so Lloyd-Jones, he's talking to him, going to get the history. And at the end of it, Carl Henry says, uh, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, he says, if there is one thing, just one thing that you could convey to preachers on, he he wrote a famous book called Preaching and Preachers that everybody still reads. there's one thing you can convey at the end of your life and ministry, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, there's one thing you can convey, just one thing to preachers who are coming up, what would that be? What's that one message you would say? You've got to stick with this. I mean, Carl Henry's building this up. Here's the guy who's at his deathbed. He's been so influential. What's that one thing you could say? And Lloyd-Jones thought for a second, and he said, tell them to flee the wrath to come. Now, that, that's a quote from John the Baptist, right? The Pharisees come out as they are eager to see what John the Baptist is, is doing. And John the Baptist says, who told you to flee the wrath to come? The axe is already laid at the root. God's judgment is here. It's just a matter of when he swings it, John the Baptist says. Who told you to flee the wrath to come? Well, Carl Henry's kind of taken back. You can see it. I mean, you can feel it. Like, wait, 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 wait. Maybe you didn't understand what I'm saying, you know? I mean, here's your last chance to say the last thing that you want to say. To preachers and to those who are coming after you in the world and your legacy, what is it? And Lloyd-Jones thought about it again as Carl Henry posed the question. And for the second time, Lloyd-Jones said, tell them to flee the wrath to come. And I find that incredibly interesting. Because oftentimes, we like to make go through life and tell everybody everything's going to be okay if you just do this. And everything's going to be all right if you just do that. And everything's going to be fine. And Jesus loves you. It's okay. It's okay. Right. And I'm pretty sure as Noah constructed the ark, as he's getting it big and everything's about to happen. And as people are, he's saying, y'all better. It's coming, y'all. The rain is coming. You better find shelter. You better do something. He's constructing our And the scriptures tell us that they laughed at him. And they mocked him, and I'm sure as he's building this ark, and it, and, and then the Lord says, "Get up in it," and the door shut, right? And the door shut. The animals come. The door shut. I'm pretty sure as the people were there and start going, "Wait a minute," the rain's coming down, just as he said. Wait a minute, the water's rising. I'm positive that Noah didn't take a big bumper sticker and put it on the back of the ark and say, "Smile, Jesus loves you." Right, Because the message at that time is not smile, Jesus loves you. The message at that time is repent, for the judgment is coming. Repent. And when we look at this text, we look at this text, we see that's exactly what the Lord says. And it's not far removed from what we know as well, for the wages of sin is death. And death is coming to us all. And when we, it's appointed for all of us to die and then face judgment. And so all of us better be on the ark, right? But the ark now is not a boat somewhere over in the Middle East. The ark now is not the church. As some church history has said, the church is the ark of God, and come and get on it. The ark is not any institution in this world. The ark is not any of that. The ark is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the one who takes the wrath of God for us and protects us from it, who has covered us and keeps us through the storms of God's wrath is Jesus Christ himself. And so for us, flee the wrath to come. And the way we flee it is by trusting in Jesus who has overcome it who has taken it. And as the scripture says, Jesus has come and he's taken the wrath of God that deserves for us, deserve, that we deserve. He's taken that wrath and on the cross, he not only ended it, he drank every last drop of it, the scripture says. And what that means is, is there is none left for those who are in Christ. We've been redeemed. There's a great word in scripture. There's two words to describe uh, God's, uh, Jesus' Death for us. One is expiation. Expiation means he's taken our sins and removed them as far as the east is from the west, right? So he's taken our sins and expiated them, removed them from us. The other is a big word called propitiation. And propitiation used in John and other places means that God has taken the judgment that we deserved and he has drank every last drop of it. There's none left for those who are in him. The Lord looks at Noah he says, here's what you're going to do. Here's the plan. And that plan reflects even what God will do for us through Christ Jesus, our Lord through judgment. Now at the end of this, and you can go through and you can read the story. Y'all know it. Well, Uh, the Lord said happens over and over again. God is revealing himself. Here's the plan. Here's what you do. Noah does the right thing and says, yes, sir. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And he does exactly what the Lord says. And what happens to Noah after the flood? He gets out. He makes it safely through. Why? Because he was obedient to what God said. He was obedient to what God called him to do. And so Noah hears God's word. He's obedient to every word God says. He does exactly what God says for him to do and he makes it to the other side. Safe through the judgment and wrath of God. And God will start again. And we'll see that in the next couple of weeks, how he starts again with Noah and keeps on moving, keeps on moving. I've said many times, that's the theological side, I believe, of the ark and the story of Noah. There's also other things that we see and we can understand through this. I think, uh, I, I believe, by the way, just to let y'all know to make sure I'm clear. I believe this is not some local flood that just happened in the Middle East. I think this is exactly what the scriptures say. A worldwide catastrophic flood. And when you have a worldwide catastrophic flood, then by all means it can do damage around the world geologically in just a matter of seconds or moments. And so I believe that what happens with scientists when they consider the age of the earth and other things is they don't take into account the scriptures and believe they're saying that's true, that there was a worldwide catastrophic flood, right? So I believe these things in Scripture. There's no reason for us not to. I'm fine, by the way, when I'm going to, on on believing God's word and trusting it, there's some sense where it proves itself to be true over and over again. We're no fool when we believe in what proves itself to be true over and over again, right? But not only that, I'm fine with going ahead and saying, I believe it, because I'm going to get to heaven, and and, and if I was wrong in that, then I'm sure the Lord will let me know. And he won't, because I wasn't wrong. I believed his word, right? Y'all know what I'm talking about. And so we believe what God's word says. And here in Genesis 6, God sees the world and he judges it. But you know what he says? I'm not going to flood the earth again. Next time, what comes? Y'all remember? I'm bringing the fire next time. God does not say, I'm not going to judge again. Next time I judge, it will be more strongly and even more harshly. Why? Why? because I've provided a greater ark for you in Jesus Christ. And there's no excuse apart from him, right? And I pray that we're all trusting in him. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we thank you for this evening and this opportunity to be together. We thank you for your word and we thank you for Jesus, who is our safety, our ark, the one who takes us through the wrath and brings us safely to the other side. Father, in your name, help us to hear your word and help us to be be obedient. For we love you and we thank you for all of it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank y'all for being here. We'll see y'all Sunday. Yeah. That's right, Sunday.